You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious God, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that you would help us to see in your word the glory of Christ and the glory of our great God. It is a joy to be able to see in the passages of Scripture those things which you have for us. We feast upon your word, and we look forward with great expectation every time we open your word to learn of you and to hear you in the pages of Scripture. So we ask that the Spirit of God may be our guide and our teacher this morning and that you would be honored in and through your word in our study of it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever played that word association game where one person says a word and the other person says immediately what comes to the mind, the first word that pops into the mind? Like You would say apple, I say pie. You say Thanksgiving, I say football. You say mother-in-law, I say broomstick. That's the word association game I'm talking about. What is it that first pops into your mind when you hear the word cross, particularly the cross of Christ? I sat down this last week and I made up a a list of some of the things that I typically associate with the word cross. Uh, Probably at the top of that list would be pain and agony. Crucifixion was the most painful imaginable death. It was it was not an efficient death. It was not intended to kill its victim quickly. Uh, in fact, it was intended to do the opposite. It was intended to draw out the execution of its victim to extract the most uh, intense pain in its every form. The crucifixion was intended to kill the victim slowly uh, and very painfully. So when I think of cross, I think of agony, uh, suffering, pain, and excruciating pain. I often think of humiliation and humility and humbleness because not only was it a painful death, it was also a a shameful death. It was very humiliating. They they uh, stripped their victims naked and hung them in public. And to be associated with a cross was to be associated with criminals. And Jesus was hung with criminals. It was to be uh, cursed. It was to be shamed, reproached. They would hurl vic- uh, uh, hurl abuses at the victims. They would hurl insults at the victims. Uh, people would 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 walk by or ride by and ridicule those who hung on the cross. So. The whole idea of the cross brings to my mind humility and humiliation. That those who were hung on crosses were humiliated before everybody in every conceivable way. They, they left no dignity intact to crucifixion victims. Or I think of the fact that um, I think of curse when I think of a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And of course it brings to mind death. And with that blood... Blood is another thing that comes to my mind when I think of the cross. We think of the blood of the cross. We speak of the blood of the cross. Uh, the crosses were uh, certainly bloody ordeals. Uh, with the imagery of blood comes um, the whole idea of sacrifice and maybe even a more theologically rich term like atonement and what was accomplished at the cross through the blood of the cross. Uh, in that idea of atonement, of course, the other images that come to my mind or words that come to my mind is God's judgment, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness and God's wrath, all of which were demonstrated at the cross. All of those things come to mind. That God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God can declare righteous, declare righteous a believing sinner who is still in a sinning state. 
that he can declare that one righteous without compromising his justice and without compromising the just demands of the law. How can God do that? God can do that because the just demands of the law, that the guilty be punished, is satisfied in Jesus Christ. So God is both just and the forgiver of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the cross, justice and love kiss each other. They meet at the cross. That's all. The, that's, those are the things that come to my mind. Maybe some of those or all of those or a few of those came to your mind when you think of the term cross. How many of you think of glory? For how many of you is the word glory the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the cross? Probably not. Probably not one of the first things. Why is that? I think partly because when we look at the cross, or at least our, our imagination of it, we don't see much glory there, do we? It's humiliation, it's reproach, it's shame, it's pain, it's suffering, agony, wrath of God, humiliation, all of that, all tied up in that. We don't tend to think of glory as being attached to the cross. And yet, do you realize how glorious really the cross is? It is a magnificently glorious thing in history. It is a magnificently glorious thing in reality and in Scripture. And Jesus did not hesitate to speak of Glory of God connected to His suffering on the cross, which He does in John chapter 13 and the 31st verse. And that's where we're picking it up this morning. John uh, 13, verse 31. Therefore, when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Now, verse 31 marks a turning point in our study of of John's Gospel um, in this upper room time with the disciples. It's a turning point for two reasons. Well, primarily because Judas is gone, but here's what makes it a turning point. It's, a, it's significant that Judas is gone because of what Judas went to do. Judas had left this room, not just to go be by himself, but Judas left this room under the cover of darkness to go betray the Lord of Light to the religious authorities. What Judas was doing in, in this act of betrayal was to turn Jesus into the religious authorities so that they could arrest him where he was in private. That's, that's the essence of the betrayal. The religious leaders wanted to seize Jesus, but they didn't want to do it in front of the crowds. They feared an uprising. There was enough people there who were at least sympathetic to him at the time that if they had arrested him publicly, uh, they would they feared a revolt, some sort of an uprising from the crowds. So they were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus apart from the crowds. But the only place they ever saw him was in the temple, surrounded by crowds, in the middle of the city, at a sacrifice, teaching people publicly. He was always surrounded by people. They needed somebody who would be able to reveal to them where Jesus would be privately and alone, where they could get him away from the crowds. Judas knew that information. So when Judas left the upper room with the disciples, he is going to the religious leaders to tell them, you can go and arrest Jesus now. He is alone. He is just with the 11 disciples, and he is in this location. That was the act of betrayal. They they needed to arrest him. They didn't want to do it publicly. Judas snitched that information, which secured, uh, it gave them the ability to arrest him and secure him apart from the crowds. They did it that very night, even before this evening would finish up. They would have him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would go on the way and, and during the supper room discourse. It is also significant that Judas is gone, and this is another reason why we reached a turning point. Jesus is now alone with just 11 believing disciples. The devil has left the room, as it were. So now he has the true disciples. Now the conversation changes dramatically. And for the next four chapters, chapter 14, chapter 15, 16, and 17, the conversation between Jesus and the disciples is entirely different. It's it's very theologically robust. We're going to get into some very deep theological stuff that Jesus dives into. 
as he prepares his disciples for his departure. And so this is the turning point. Verse 31 is really officially the beginning of the farewell discourse. He's with the 11 disciples and he is now preparing them for his departure, which he begins speaking of in, in verses 31 through 38. He begins talking about his, him, him leaving soon. So let me give you a bit of an outline. Between this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to finish the 13th chapter. And then as I mentioned, uh, Dave's going to be preaching. And I mentioned you don't want to miss that. Uh, Dave's going to be preaching that Sunday and then we'll jump back into uh, chapter 14. So we're going to look at the glory of the cross in verses 31 through 33 today and then we'll finish up the, the chapter next week. Here's kind of a little bit of an outline. With Judas gone, Jesus basically in three sentences or three statements introduces three main themes that he will develop for the next four chapters. These are three themes that Jesus will kind of return to. They can be traced all the way through to the end of chapter 17. And the three themes are this. Verses 31 is the glory of God in the cross and in the events that are about to unfold. Look what he says. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. The second theme is His departure, which He mentions over and over and over again in chapter 14. Look at verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And the third theme is love of the disciples for one another. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Those are the three themes. The glory of God, His departure, He is leaving them, and so there are instructions that they need to catch in order to to deal with Him being gone. And then the third is love for the brethren, the idea of love. Whereas in chapters 1 through 12, light and darkness were predominant themes. Now beginning in chapter 13 through 17, it is love which is the predominant theme because it is just Jesus with his people. So now he begins to unfold the realities of the love. We get the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together uh, and love within the triune God. Then we get relationship between the disciples and their love for one another and the love of the triune God for the disciples and the love of the disciples for the triune God. So all of these three themes really are going to be unfolded over the course of the next four uh, chapters. And today we're just going to introduce this idea of the glory of God and Jesus departing. So we pick it up in verse 31 with the the glory of God. Verse 31, Therefore when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Notice the connection that John makes in Judas leaving and Jesus now beginning to speak again. When Judas had gone out, that's significant. All that is about to be said and all that is about to be unpacked for these disciples is without the evil one present. The false disciple, the fake disciple is gone. So no longer will Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, say, this applies to most of you, but there's one of you here that is unclean. Or there's one of you here that is a devil. Or there's one of you here who is not a true and genuine disciple. No longer does Jesus have to say that. Now that Judas is gone, there is a heart-to-heart conversation that takes place between the shepherd of the sheep, and those who truly belong to him. So everything we are about to read is really geared toward only believers, and specifically the 11 disciples that are left. And now Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That title, Son of Man, do you remember back in chapter 12, we spent a whole sermon talking about what the Son of Man was, and what that title was, and why Jesus used it? It is his favorite way of referring to himself in the third person. In the four Gospels, Jesus uses the title Son of Man over 80 times, to speak of himself. And this, I think, is the last time in John's gospel that Jesus uses the term of himself, if memory serves me correct. 
This is the last time in John's gospel where he, he speaks of the Son of Man. It was a, it was a term taken out of Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 where Daniel has a vision of one who is like the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and the Father or God who sits on the throne gives to this Son of Man figure an everlasting kingdom whose dominion will never come to an end, whose kingdom will never end and he will reign and rule over it for all of eternity. That Son of Man figure is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus took the Daniel 7, 13, and 14 title, Son of Man. He applied it to himself, and it is an appropriate title for Jesus for two reasons. First, the imagery uh, speaks of a divine character. In Daniel chapter 7, it is a divine being who is given this kingdom by the Father. And that's clear in Daniel chapter 7. For he rules over it never to die, and his kingdom never comes to an end. So it is a divine figure in Daniel 7. Second, that title, Son of Man, speaks of his humanity. And that's how it's also used in the Old Testament, of his humanity. So his deity and his humanity, because he is the Son of Man. Real human being, real God, in the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a perfect term for Jesus to use of himself. But he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And notice that he he mentions that or speaks of the Son of Man being glorified in the past tense, even though it hadn't yet happened. Do you notice that? Now is the Son of Man Glorified, past tense. It's errorist, meaning that Jesus is viewing this as something that is a completed whole. How could he speak of something that was yet future as if it were past tense? Because it was so absolutely certain that this would happen. The, the events of this night are being set in motion even as he speaks. Judas is, Judas is knocking on the door of Caiaphas or Annas or somebody who has authority to betray the Son of Man into their hands. Even as he speaks these words, the events are set in motion, and there is nothing that can keep this from happening. It is going to unfold just as the Son of Man wants it to unfold. So he can speak of something that hasn't even happened yet, as if it were yet a past event, because it is absolutely certain that he is going to die for his sheep. So now is the Son of Man glorified. And even though Jesus doesn't mention the cross in these two verses, and even though he doesn't mention his death in these two verses specifically, There can be no doubt that that is exactly what he is describing. That he is describing the cross and that he is describing his death. Because in verse 33, he mentions that he is going to depart. He's going to leave them. It can be no doubt. There can be no doubt that he is describing his death and his crucifixion in verses 31 and 32. Uh, As he does back in chapter 12. Do you remember the passage in chapter 12 beginning in verse 23? Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's speaking of his death. And he views his death as something that would glorify him, and would glorify the Father. Now there are three certainties, three certainties mentioned in verses 31 and 32. First, that the Son of Man would be glorified, and with the Son of Man being glorified, God would be glorified. That's the first certainty. That Christ would be glorified, and the Father would be glorified. The the second certainty is that the Father would glorify the Son of Man in Himself. And the third certainty is that this would happen immediately. Now before we dive into those three, we have to ask ourselves, What does it mean to glorify God? How do we glorify God? In one sense, that's a very simple question to answer. In another sense, it's a very complex question to answer. 
when we speak and we talk this way, that we give God glory. What do we mean by that? We give God glory. Does that mean that we just give Him credit? Does it mean that in some sense we sort of add to God's glory? That we kind of contribute to it? And so we do something and then God is more glorious than He was before and the more we do to glorify Him, the more glorious He becomes? What do we mean when we say we glorify the Lord or we give God the glory? When I speak of glory, what do you think of? What do you in your mind's eye see? Some sort of brightness, right? Some sort of radiance or brightness. Moses saw the veiled glory of God and his face lit up for a period of time. Um, Scripture says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, inaccessible, and yet he is hid from our eyes in a sense. Uh, God gl- dwells in this unapproachable light and he is infinitely glorious But what is that glorious? Is it just a bright light? Or is it more than a bright light? The glory of God is more than just a bright light. When we speak of the glorious glory of God, we are talking about the visible manifestation of His splendorous, is that a word? His splendid, majestic radiance. It is the the splendor of His majesty. When we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about Really, the the visible manifestation of His character and His being. Think of it this way. God does not dwell in unapproachable light because He is powerful enough to create a bright light. That's not it. God dwells in unapproachable light because of who He is. He is so splendid, so majestic, that He is that light. And it's not that we worship light It is that if you see all that God is, His splendor is this unapproachable light. That is His glory. It is the radiance of His being. It's not that God is so powerful that He creates a bright light so that we can't see Him. It is that when we see Him, that is how it appears to us, is as light, as bright light, as unapproachable light. Because He is so great, that is what He looks like. So glory, really, in one sense, is the visible manifestation of who He is. So what is what do we mean then when we say we give God glory? How do we give God glory? How can can we add to God's glory? Let's start there. Can we add to God's glory? Can we make Him more glorious than He is? And so we'll meet here next Sunday. We'll sing a bunch of songs and make God more glorious. Is that what we do? So that in heaven the angels say, wow, Kootenai's got it on today. Uh, your your glory was this before today, but because of Kootenai Church and their worship service, they have incrementally added to your glory. Is that what we mean when we say that we give God glory? We can't mean that, because then God would be lesser before we come along, right? And He can't be lesser before we come along. It's not that we add to His splendor, or that we add to His glory, but when we glorify the Lord, all we do, I shouldn't say all we do, think of it in these terms, What we do is we manifest who He is. That brings Him glory. So in the preaching of the Gospel, God is glorified, not that He becomes more glorious, but that He is seen by us as being more glorious. His glory, His person is put on display. When we glorify the Lord, all we are doing is saying we are going to put God on display. When we glorify the Lord, we are pointing people to Him so that they see Him and not anything else. So God is glorified, not that His glory is added to, but that His glory is displayed so that His person is made known. His being is magnified. He is seen to be great in our eyes, and in that way, God's glory is put on display. So we let our lights shine before men so that we might what? 
glorify our Father who is in heaven. We are putting Him on display before men. In the preaching of the Word, in the explaining of the Word, in the teaching of Scripture, in our understanding of Scripture, all we are doing is coming to understand who He is and appreciate Him. And we see Him as He is, and His glory is increased to us. Not increased in Him, but increased to us, in that we see more of Him. That is what it means to glorify the Lord. So now then we ask the question, how is the Son of Man glorified in His death? To answer that question, let's state the question another way. What does the Son of Man put on display about Himself and the Father at the cross? That's really the question we're asking. When we say, how is the Son of Man glorified in the cross? We are really asking, what, do, what did Jesus Christ put on display for all of the world at the cross? What did He put on display concerning Himself? What did He put on display concerning the Father at the cross? And if we answer that question, then we can see how God is not, not that His glory is increased, but that His glory is displayed before men at the cross of Christ. So what did God display at the cross? Well, the love of God obviously is displayed at the cross, is it not? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can we not with confidence say that Christ loved me and gave Himself for me? Is not the love of Christ for His sheep and for His bride the church on display before men at the cross of Christ? It most certainly is. Can we all not also say that the, the humility of Christ is on display, that He who was equal with God did not consider His equality with God something to be held on to for His own advantages, but that He who was worshipped by angels and glorified by the saints in heaven gladly laid aside that glory, not laying aside His deity, laying aside His glory and the visible manifestation of that so that He could be veiled in flesh and come here and live in this sin hole and be treated the way that He was by sinful human beings who did not even have the eyes to see the glory that was there in the person of Christ. Is that not humility? That is incredible humility. How about the wisdom of God? What, what wisdom is it that devises a plan whereby man's sin could be atoned for with and, and forgiven without ever violating the just demands of God's law? And not only that our sin could be forgiven, but that, that a wretch like me could be declared righteous in the sight of God. What wisdom is that? Does not the cross demonstrate the wisdom of God? Who would have concocted such a plan? Where God would take, God the Son would take the Father's wrath on behalf of His people. So that those people could be forgiven and declared righteous and share in His glory for all of eternity. Could man concoct such a, a plan? Could the world concoct such a plan? He could never do that. But that is the wisdom of God on display at the cross. And the grace of Christ is displayed on the cross. And of course, as we talked about earlier, justice and wrath. That, that justice is satisfied. And, and what does my sin look like? And, and how does, what is necessary for my sin to be forgiven? What does the wrath of God poured out on sin look like? We see that at the cross. And so at the cross, we see the wrath of God against sin. We see how hideous our sin is. We see His holiness and the just demands of His holiness satisfied. We see righteousness achieved at the cross and atonement is made. All of that we see. And the, and the glory, when all of that is displayed, the glory of God is made manifest at the cross. And of course, the mercy of God for sinners the compassion of God for sinners, the willingness of God to forgive sinners, that Christ would pray for His persecutors and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, and that He would grant entrance to paradise to that penitent thief on the cross. When all of those attributes of God are put on display at the cross, friends, He is glorified in that. Is the Son of Man, was God the Father glorified in the miracles that Christ did? He was. 
Was God glorified in the teachings that Christ gave? He was. Was God glorified in the righteous life that Jesus lived? He was. But you know what the the zenith of His glory is? You know what the most glorious aspect of His work is? It's the cross. For there on that cross, where my Prince of Glory died, all of those attributes of the Father and all of the grace of Christ were put on display for all to see. So now the question, do all see it? They don't, do they? They don't see it. Some people don't see the glory of the cross. And yet, Jesus says in verse 31, therefore when He had gone out, uh, sorry, John says, when He had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. That's the first certainty, that the Son of Man is glorified at the cross and God is glorified in what He did. The Father was glorified and the attributes of the Father were put on display when Jesus was hung on a cross The Father was glorified in that humiliation. And that is the glory of the Son. There's a paradox there, isn't it? There's nothing glorious about that. And yet, in the paradox, in the mind of God, that is the most glorious aspect of what Christ did. Everything in history points forward to that, anticipates it, expects it, and awaits it. And then it comes, and everything that has happened after that is an explanation of, an expounding of, and is the effects of the cross. And for all of eternity, we will sing for all of eternity of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That will be the center of our worship in heaven forever. Forever. It is what God planned from eternity past. And in that death on the cross, the Father was glorified and the Son was glorified. The second certainty is that the Son will be glorified by the Father. Look what Jesus says next in verse 32. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. And will glorify Him immediately. That's the second certainty. Not just that the Son glorifies the Father in His death, but if the Father is glorified, and the if is not, you know, if I can pull this off, there's uncertainty. It's not that at all. It is, since we know this to be true, and it is true, then the Father will glorify the Son of Man in Himself. When was the Son of Man glorified by the Father? I think that refers to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father. In the resurrection, the Father glorified the Son. The Son glorified the Father in His humiliation. The Father glorified the Son in the Son's exaltation. So closely united are the intentions of the Father and the Son that they glorify one another because the whole plan of redemption is about the self-glorification of God. It is about God putting on display His attributes and who He is because that is for His glory and for our good. And so just as the the Father would be honored by the Son offering Himself on the cross, the Father would glorify the Son by raising the Son from the dead and vindicating what the Son did in in giving His approval to the Son and exalting the Son. The Father has glorified the Son. That's why Philippians chapter 2 says that God has also highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those above the earth and under the earth, every one of them to the glory of God the Father. And He has been exalted above all principalities and powers and every ruler and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has been given the highest position. And then the Father has given to Him a kingdom. And guess what? The Son will so administer and rule over that kingdom that when He has put down every enemy, and the last enemy being death, He will turn around and give all of that glory back to the Father. So the Father gives all of this to the Son to glorify the Son. The Son turns around and hands all of it back to the Father to glorify the Father. That's 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the chapter, where that is described. What a magnificent plan the cross is, is it not? It is glorious. 
The first certainty is that the Son would be glorified in His death, and He would glorify the Father in that death. The second certainty is that the Father would glorify the Son, and the third certainty that this would happen immediately. In other words, Jesus is not describing to the disciples something's going to happen a thousand years from now. He is describing something that was going to unfold even that night, and the next day, and three days later, and then 40 days later when He would uh, ascend into heaven and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. These things would happen right away. Now, I ask you this question, does everybody see the glory of the cross? Now, they certainly don't. You can walk across the street, pick your direction. You can walk across the street and find somebody who does not see any glory in the cross whatsoever. They don't get it. Why don't they get it? Because when they see Jesus hanging on a cross, they see an accident of history. They see a victim. They see a political revolutionary who is just a a victim of a corrupt system. Uh, They see Bill O'Reilly's idea of who Jesus is or... Or just any other idea of who Jesus is. They don't see God hanging on a cross. And guess what? They don't see the glory of the cross because their eyes are blinded to the glory of the cross. They see nothing significant there. If they saw something significant there, they would be here. Worshipping the one who hung on that cross. But they don't see the glory of the cross. But to us, that glory has been revealed. Our eyes have been opened, not because we're wiser than other men. Not because we're greater than other human beings but because God has chosen to hide those things from the world. That, that in the eyes of the world, what we believe is foolishness. But what we believe is the wisdom of God on display. And the world looks at it and says it's foolishness. It's an offense. It's idiocy. But we see it. Why? Because we're more astute? Because we're wiser? Smarter? No, because God has hidden those things to them and revealed it to babes. He has revealed it to us. It's not the wealthy, it's not the rich, it's not the powerful, it's not the wise of this world. It's who? It's the insignificant and the small in order that God may be glorified. We're the ones who see it. We see the glory of the cross. We see the glory of the cross. We we glory in the cross because we see the glory that is in the cross. And the cross is indeed a very glorious thing. There's also a principle at work here, and I don't want you to miss this. Those who give God glory receive glory from God. Understand what I mean by this. Jesus is saying, I'm going to honor and glorify the Father, and the Father is going to glorify me. The same is true of us in a sense, and I want you to catch this, in in this sense, that those who honor and glorify God, God does not take from His glory and make more of us and less of Himself. That's not what we mean. But that we share in that glory and we reflect that glory for all of eternity. Those who glorify the Lord and honor the Lord and give Him His due and bow the knee before Him, share in His glory for all of eternity. Those who do not glorify God and refuse to honor Him as God, they get everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. God will honor those who honor Him. God gives glory or shares His glory with those who will also glorify Him. So that's the glory of the cross. Jesus speaks of His death, verses 31 and 32. And now I want you to look at His departure, verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, and now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And here's what Jesus is saying. He cannot speak really of his death without speaking of his departure. He wants them to understand, I'm going to be glorified, but connected to that, necessarily and inseparably connected to that, is the reality that I'm going to be going somewhere where you cannot go. Verse 36 says that they would eventually follow him. They're going to die and go to where He is going to go, but they would not follow Him immediately. And though they would seek Him, meaning they would long for His presence, they would wish that He were there, 
they would long for those days when he was physically present, they cannot come there, at least not right away, just as he had said to the Jews. So Jesus speaks of his death, and then he speaks of his departure. Uh, let me offer a, a couple of thoughts here as we, as we wrap this up and prepare our hearts for communion. God in, God in communion and in this, in the Lord's Supper has given us a means whereby we really glory in the cross. And we glory in the cross in this sense that in the bread and in the juice, we are not partaking of things which have a saving influence in our lives. They don't save us. They don't sanctify us. There is a grace there that is intended to, to work with, uh, the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But the bread is more than just bread. It's the body of Christ that is broken for us. And the juice is more than just juice. It it speaks of something far greater, and it speaks of the blood of Christ which was poured out for us. Partaking of communion is a very solemn thing. And what makes it a solemn thing? Because of the glory of what it points to. You and I, our eyes, if you are in Christ, have been opened to see the glory of the cross in the cross of Christ. We see glory there, not just pain, not just affliction, not just suffering and humiliation, just wrath, we, we see all of that, the holiness of God, the love of Christ for His people. We see all of that, but we see so much more. We see the glory of it. That this really, this event, puts on display the nature and the character of the Father and the nature and character of the Son. And the plan of the triune God to glorify Himself for all of eternity by redeeming a people through the death of Christ. That is the glory of the cross. So we partake of communion and it is a solemn thing and we ought to examine our hearts and do so seriously because if we are cherishing sin when we partake of the Lord's Supper, if we are cherishing sin, then then we are at best profaning the cross of Christ and we are profaning it because we are pretending to love Him when really we love sin. And we are saying that I love sin, but I also love Christ. And that is a lie. We, We cannot serve two masters. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness. So we examine ourselves and we confess our sin and repent of our sin because we do not want to profane something so glorious. By And we can also profane it if we are not believers. If you are not a believer and you partake of the Lord's Supper, friends, heed the warning of Scripture. You eat and drink judgment to yourself. It is a serious thing. For you're doing what Judas did. You are feigning to love Christ when in reality you are an enemy of God in your mind through wicked works. And you do not belong to Him. And you are saying, this is for me, and I'm trusting in this, when in reality it is all an external show, and you are doing it, heaping up only judgment to yourself. Because the cross is so glorious, our observance of the Lord's Supper is so serious. It is a solemn thing. We do not want to eat and drink judgment to ourselves. If we are unbelievers, if you're an unbeliever, don't do it. And we do not want to... Uh, eat and drink judgment to ourselves by by partaking of the Lord's Supper with hearts that cherish and love sin. So we repent of our sin, we confess our sin, we acknowledge our sin, we come to the Lord with penitent hearts to partake of communion, confessing our sins so that we might glory in the cross. Because in the cross is where our salvation is purchased. So we will pray together quietly, and then I will lead us in prayer, and then I'll ask the ushers to come forward and partake of communion together. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. 
Once again, thank you for listening.